0: Okay, before we move on, there's a little question that I thought I would address here. What does this discussion of the uh, impermanence and emptiness of self say about the Judeo Christian belief in a soul or the question of rebirth? And what it says about the soul is something, it says that whatever the soul is, it isn't in the five aggregates. And I doubt if any religious person would have any problem with that statement. If there is something corresponding to the idea of the soul, then it's definitely not in the five aggregates. And it's not necessary to account for our individuality, and a religious person has no problem with that either, because the religions that deal with souls don't don't have a problem with the idea that there can be soulless beings, and the idea that you could create an artificial intelligence or an artificial person, or if there was such a thing as a zombie. It could be someone that looked just like any of the rest of us that didn't have a soul. So, soul's not necessary for what we're talking about. It's also not necessary for us to negate the idea of a soul. It just is not, it's no reason why it needs to be a part of our discussion. No reason why anybody following this Dharma needs to give up their religious belief in a soul. At the time of the Buddha, uh, it was very, very common belief was in reincarnation. The idea of being a personal reincarnation. Um, and that is a notion that comes into conflict with the idea of no self. So the Buddha spoke of rebirth and made it clear that Yes, there may be rebirth, but whatever is reborn is not the self you imagine it to be. The same thing. Whatever it is that's reborn, we don't need to deny rebirth. Although it's obvious that reincarnation, that we are this single, unchanging, separate self that somehow holds together in some way and takes on a new body like a new suit of clothes, there's no evidence for that, but if people choose to believe in rebirth, as long as they are are able to understand that whatever is reborn isn't the self that you imagine you are, it doesn't stand in the way at all of practicing this dharma. Yeah. So does that mean that the idea of, of, of reincarnation, all that, is without concept of an individuality, is what I just heard, or coming from this... The thing is that reincarnation is not a part of what the Buddha taught, but the point is that somebody who, uh, you know, depending on, if you believe in something under the label of reincarnation, it can't be the kind of reincarnation that assumes... Or a soul. I mean, if you talk to some people about souls, okay, it comes to to the same thing. If there is some sort of of undefinable substance that is a soul, that soul could as easily participate in rebirth as that soul could be uh, resurrected in heaven. And we're not in conflict with either of those views, we're not supporting either of those views, and We're just saying that whatever it is that's reborn, and whatever it is that God might take into heaven or send to hell, it's not the you that you think you are. We're interested in exploring the self that you think you are and the implications of that. It also is uh, fine for atheists who believe there is no soul and there's no no rebirth. Because we never said there was either. (laughs) what was the difference between rebirth and reincarnation well the difference is an attempt to distinguish between the very common idea still very common today of reincarnation is that we are this self we imagine ourselves to be and that the self we imagine ourselves to be is going to take on a new body And so the whole point of, that is something that cannot be, that doesn't stand up to examination, doesn't stand up to personal reflection or investigation, and indeed is obviously not true. So rebirth is a way of of distinguishing between that clearly false view and allowing people to if it's an important part of a person's belief or faith or motivation to practice or anything else, to believe that there is something that's reborn. So the re-born, rebirth, the word rebirth allows that with, uh, while I'm still making a distinction between reincarnation. And that's what you will generally find in Theravadan literature. They will say, reincarnation, no. Rebirth, yes. maybe. Composting. composting we're composted okay so so the self that we think we are doesn't exist but the mind constructs a self the ego self that I talked about but that ego self that the mind constructs, if, even recognizing that it is a construction of the mind, you might say to yourself, well, but my ego self, it's still myself. And want to wrestle with that. And so we can. Except that when you examine the mental construct of self, you'll see that you don't have one, you have many of them. And if you observe your own behavior and your activities and things like that, you'll you'll notice how you tend to put on different selves in different situations, like changing hats. And that is the nature of the ego self. It's a construct of the mind. It serves a really useful purpose. The self that you are in one situation, that self knows how to act in that situation. And when your five aggregates relocates to a different situation, um, it will choose from its closet one of the selves that most well fits this new situation, and that will allow it to function and, and fit in and everything else. The other thing is that your selves, these selves that you your mind creates and makes use of, are constantly changing. They're not the same. They're constantly being <coughs> tweaked, adapted, discarded and a new one made in its place, don't need to hold on to that one anymore because I don't hang around with those people anymore, or I don't do that anymore. You, know. um, you join AA, you've got a whole collection of selves you have to replace. You have to get rid of those and build a whole new set of selves to replace them. So, selves come and go, and selves constantly change. Yeah? When, when you're using the term self like this, it, it, could it be interchangeable with personality? Uh, It it, it includes personality. Yeah. It includes personality. It goes beyond that. Because um, personality is a collection of characteristics. And we take that collection of characteristics, and we take certain characteristics and we incorporate them into a particular self. Um, I suppose if you think of a person with multiple personalities, in that sense, yeah, you could call it personality. It's what happens, uh, what happens in people, I mean, we all have multiple selves in this regard. And there's some people where it's, it's not that they they have multiple selves and we don't, it's that their selves are being employed in a different, more mutually exclusive way. The different selves are ways of coping with different situations, and they have become more completely isolated and distinct from each other than in most others. Um, The other thing is that you might tend to think that, well, my ego construct, it's mine. I made it. Um, And, of course, you you think of that, too, when you, you don't like somebody else's ego construct, you give them total responsibility for the ego construct that they're wearing that you don't like. But the truth is if we examine this, we our mind creates an ego construct in response to those around us, to some degree in response to circumstances and events, but more than anything else, in response to the other people. And that's why each, each self that we have fits certain kinds of situations, because it has the characteristics that it has didn't come entirely from in here. Most of them came from out there. And that information coming from out there was used by the mind to create an appropriate ego self for this situation. So the ego self, once again, it, does, it doesn't fulfill the definition uh, of the self that you that you just naturally tend to feel you are. It's not one, it's many. And it doesn't endure, it's constantly changing. And it's not even separate in the sense that your mind makes it. Other people's minds play a bigger role than your own mind in the generation of these cells. So once again, it's a reality. It's like the five aggregates. It's real, it's there. As a matter of fact, it's part of the five aggregates it's real and it's there we're not denying its existence but we're saying it's not the kind of self that you've come to think it is and this is the advantage that it gives us when we understand that we stop acting as though it were that kind of self okay the third delusion the third aspect of delusion which is the third uh, the, the truth behind the delusion is the third characteristic Of reality third characteristic of phenomenal experience of human of human experience which is suffering it's basically that it is that to the degree to which you cling to the notion of the self or the notion of the world as you perceive it you are going to suffer That suffering is is inevitable. Grasping to illusion brings only temporary satisfaction. And what I'm sure you've all noticed is that to continue grasping to a particular illusion, it soon loses its ability to satisfy. And this is because at some level, your mind knows this is not going to last. And you know, it's an interesting thing about addiction. They say that uh, drug abusers and alcoholics really spend most of their trying, time trying to recapture an experience that's long, long past that happened when they first started using drugs, when they first started drinking. And in a sense, That's what we do with all of our different attachments. Mm -hmm. We keep, you know, the first time we attach to something and experience a lot of joy and satisfaction from it, we long for that, and so we keep going back. But we find it loses its ability to produce that effect. So this is one of the things that we experience in life is that we spend our lives pursuing happiness from the deluded notion that happiness comes from those things. And likewise, the kind of corresponding part of it is we spend our lives trying to avoid certain kinds of things and situations because we think our suffering comes from those external things. That's the delusion that keeps us from seeing this truth that clinging to these things is the cause of suffering. And so, our experience, the experience of, um, what's the right, the experience of a dedicated hedonist is that it just gets harder and harder and harder to get anything even vaguely resembling the same kind of satisfaction. And in that way, even for the most dedicated hedonists, if they're honest, their life is becoming more and more joyless. And that is the truth of suffering. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about what happens with what you might call premature insight or insight ahead of its time. You can have insight into the impermanence and emptiness of everything in the world. You can have insight into the impermanence and emptiness of yourself. And you can have insight into the dissatisfactoriness of clinging to these things. And if your mind hasn't been prepared properly, it's going to be a terrible experience. Your life will become, it will seem to be meaningless, hopeless. You see, when you see the way things, when you see that your delusions no longer hold, you've lost something. And it's a terrible experience of loss when some part of your mind begins to suspect that the self it always believed doesn't exist it interprets it in exactly the same way as it's going to die you experience the fear of death associated with the with, the, with a premature insight into the impermanence and emptiness of self comes a terrible inner fear Terror, a loss it feels exactly like dying you've just been given a death sentence now this this is premature because it's it's based on an illusion what is disappearing is only an illusion nothing else is changing but so long as you cling to the illusion to learn that the illusion doesn't exist, gets interpreted as the self I used to be is no more. I've lost something. I've died. It's to undergo a death experience. Now, if a person successfully negotiates that, if you successfully negotiate the fear and the terror and the misery, the meaninglessness, the despair, you will come out the other side and find that there is something on the other side that is absolutely wonderful, far more wonderful than anything you ever imagined, and you really lost nothing. You've lost nothing at all. The only thing you, the only thing that was there that isn't is the illusion. But people don't always complete the transition, and that's why it's best to it's best. To confront insight when you're properly prepared. Because otherwise, you have a terrible, terrible experience and you back away of the rolling up of the mat stage. There is a way to put it into it, and that's you run off and you, 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 sex, food, money, power, drink, distraction, everything you can think of. And all of those things will. Let all your old habits come back, and the uncomfortable things that you learned will get compartmentalized. They'll keep coming back at you though. Once they're there, they're never going to go away. But sometimes people don't make the transition. So it's very important in the cultivation of insight that you be properly prepared. You have a and question. Is this some um, dark night of the soul thing? This is dark night of the soul, exactly. Is it inevitable? No. Just everybody doesn't well, go through this. There everybody has to pass everybody has to pass from belief and attachment to letting go to discovering what's on the other side. But not everybody has to make that transition as a dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is what, it was, what it's described in as Christian mysticism the term coined by St. John of the Cross. And St. Teresa of the Villa talks about it, and Master Eckhart, things like that. In Buddhism, when it occurs, it's referred to as the dukkha the knowledges of suffering. And it's outlined as a series of them, knowledge of fear, knowledge of misery, knowledge of disgust. Yeah. But everyone has to cross the same place, but they don't have to experience it that way. So then, Shivagasa, when one is uh, talking with someone about the Dharma, whether it's in a formal sense or a friend asks you about this or whatever, then one must be very judicious then about at what entry point you, you speak about this, if I understand you right. I mean, you don't want to launch into impermanence perhaps, an emptiness. No, you can speak about these things fine because a person can have an absolutely thorough and complete intellectual understanding. You can speak about it all you want. It will only help them. It is when they start to have experiential experiences that take the form of revealing insights. If they are not prepared, then the problem comes. There's no problem speaking to anybody about all of this. The problem comes it comes specifically when you give somebody a practice to do, a practice that is intended to generate insight, and they do not have they do not have the proper preparation. Then they will hit this, and then it will be terrible. And that's what's happening in this country. Remember, we we we've, we've imported meditation, but we've sort of left the virtue and the wisdom part of it to the to the lamas and the roshis, and we're not really interested in that. And these people that are going and doing these really powerful meditation practices, they start to have inside experiences, and they're totally unprepared for what happens. Mm -hmm. And so instead of this being a transition that might take uh, a few moments or a few hours, or, you know, if it's really drawn out, a few days, it becomes something that for people can go on for weeks and months and years. And, and that and can Willoughby, lead to psychiatric hospitalization right. and all kinds of other things. So that's what Willoughby was That's what Willoughby was talking them. about. Yeah. It's exactly what Willoughby discovered, is that all these people teaching insight, med- driving insight meditation, to the degree that their teaching takes effect in relatively few people. You know, most people aren't getting that far, but some of them are, and the ones that are are running into this world of hurt. The you question? Yes. Um, okay, so the, the stages were, you know, the belief in attachment, and then becoming conscious of impermanence, and then the letting go. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, who is it that we negotiate with? <laughs> who is it that you negotiate with? I'm not sure I understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Just <laughs> fine. <laughs> the same person who's doing the negotiating the <laughs> person on the other side of the consciousness what is the proper preparation, Whatever is. Whatever is. Proper preparation. Yeah. Is the preparation there's two aspects of it one is that if if you if the development of insight takes such a course that you're already really familiar with the idea of no self, and when the when those insight experiences that tell that deeper part of yourself about the truth of no self, that deeper part of your mind has something to work with constructively to you way to use this information. Right? So that's one aspect. The other that, was, that is very important is is samatha. It's the, the, the samatha is, is uh, uh, concentration, mindfulness, joy, tranquility and equanimity if you, and the last three are the part that are the bulb the insight method that doesn't involve samatha is called dry insight because it doesn't include uh, joy, tranquility and equanimity uh, and it, it, the joy, tranquility and equanimity are the lubricant, the ball. I mean, picture yourself. You have a mind that is joyful and happy. You have enormous tranquility. You have great equanimity. You don't react. And this you have some insights and the information starts to trickle down and there's some emotions rise up. I mean, this is the dynamic that's happening. Information's getting down there to some part of your self so what? Really? I don't <laughs> exist the way I think I do? It? That produces some emotions. The emotions are going to come out. So you're going to have that feeling of, of the grounds sort of that you've always stood on is, is, is sort of dissolving underneath you. And maybe a bit of anxiety and fear. But if you're filled with joy and happiness, it's like, yeah, okay. You're going to sail through it pretty easily. But if that starts happening, and you're in this place of just, I'm going to keep doing this, no matter, blah, blah, blah. Driving, driving, I'm going to do it. I want to be enlightened. I can do it. My knees hurt. But I'll do it anyway. is <laughs> your mindset. And now, from deep down inside, comes this feeling of horror, terror. It's like, whoa, you've got nothing. So you've got no way to deal with it it's going to knock you over. If you're lucky, it might not last very long. <laughs> so joy, tranquility, and, in, instant, and uh, equanimity are really, really important when these insights start to happen. And the other thing is that the better your understanding of impermanence and emptiness, and particularly impermanence and emptiness of the self. And that's because we're all, although we don't want to lose our world, we're happy to let it go if we get to keep ourselves. It's when we start losing the self that it gets really rough, <laughs> you know. So the more, the more understanding that you have brought to those insight experiences, then the easier it's going to be to make that transition. The easier it is, you know, the, basically, there's some part of your mind that's got to reprogram the way it thinks about things. And you've given it the raw material to use in that reprogramming. So when you when you when people have an experience perhaps of really seeing into the emptiness or impermanence of the self, and they feel a sense of relief, like oh gosh, that's a weight off me, you know, then then they don't have that horror. That's right. And so because they have these other factors that have helped them feel a sense this is actually a pleasant or relieving thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It can even be. Uh, I was sort of, wow, it's really true, what I've always heard. You know, mm-hmm. and had that kind of experience. So. And that's why we take refuge also, when we're yes, that's On right. beginning the path and on the path. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are very, very important. Um, another thing, the practice of virtue is, uh, and, and karma, we're going to talk about karma. Karma and the practice of virtue, which are closely associated, are designed to really, really weaken the clinging and attachment that we have. And if you start arriving at in insight without having practiced virtue, you're gonna have really strong attachment. And it's good, it's just gonna, you know, it's tearing the scab off is gonna hurt that much more. So the karma and practice of virtue will work. They they are going to weaken the clinging and attachment. And that's what we want to talk about next causality and karma. And hopefully still have time to get to virtue. But what the heck, all we've done all morning is talk. Let's meditate and go have lunch.